Has anybody ever heard the saying, sticks and stones may, may uh, break my bones, but words will never hurt me or harm me, or a variation of that? I saw some of you guys moving your lips. You guys know that saying. Um, and so originally when uh, that saying came about, um, it was uh, set in a way where to stand for truth despite um, any type of critique or any type of uh, slander towards you because you're doing the right thing. So that's how it started. Uh, but somehow along the way, uh, it became something else. And so basically what, what, what it really became was that uh, the physical uh, can hurt, but words have no power to hurt. I don't know about you guys, and I'm pretty sure a lot of you guys will agree with me, but words have a lot of power behind them. I've sat in meetings, I've had conversations with people who are broken, and, 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 and they've expressed themselves towards me in a way where I, I walked out of there hurt by their words. And I grew up in, in, a, in a neighborhood in Chicago where, honestly, it, it, um, physic, being physical was a thing, getting beat up or getting to fights and everything just to uh, get from school and back to home. Um, so I can tell you that I would much rather take a beating physically than have words because words can stay with you. Words, some uh, physical heals, but words sometimes stay for you, with you for a long, long time. So there is power in words, and the Bible speaks about this. But how many of you can agree with me that there's power in the Word of God? That there's power and hope and all these other beautiful things in the word of God. So tonight, what we're going to see is, we're going to see an Israel, an Israel that is exiled, an Israel that is broken, an Israel that is hopeless. And so um, what Ezekiel's going to do is he's going to post, or he's going to give us a view of Israel in the now, but an Israel that's going to, uh, uh, that is in the fulfillment of the promises of God as well. Uh, the first thing we're going to see is when you're going to see uh, Mount Seir, which is Edom. And uh, Pastor Brandon spoke about it a little bit before. He, they come up again. And so basically what it is is that at that point they were in a place where they were thriving. They were in a place where we're, they were like uh, the place where people would go to trade because they were in such a good place. Israel was exiled. Israel was desolate. But we see that God, he does a transformation where he reverses the things. And so we're going to see that. We're going to see that the land has something to do with, the, uh, with Israel. What we're also going to see is that he's going to describe them in two different ways, as dry bones and then as sticks. And dry bones referring to the people of Israel and bringing on a new spirit on them and giving them his, giving them his spirit. And then with the sticks, what he's going to describe is he's going to describe um, a nation that is divided, but he's going to bring un, union to it. He's going to bring it to become one once again as how he uh, made it uh, to begin with. And so 
uh, what we're going to really see is that uh, a comparing contrast, but more of a recreation of a creation that he already has. So what happened was that he created, but because sin entered the world, it slowly started to decay and slowly came to a place where he's going to describe dry bones. He's going to describe a desolate land, which is Israel in exile. And he's going to describe all these things. But what he's going to do through his word and through his spirit is that he's going to reverse that. And he's going to reverse that into a place of where he first initially, how he initially created, perfect and complete in him through his word. So um, let's get into his word. Let's start with um, Ezekiel 35. So we're not going to go 35, 36, 37. We're going to jump around a little bit. So try to stay with me and uh, I hope you guys can uh, follow along with what I'm saying. Okay, so let's pray before we get into his word. Father, I thank you because you give us the opportunity to, um, to read your word, to be able to take it and discern it and, um, and, and apply it to our hearts and our lives. And you're not just a God that just leaves us uh, to fend for ourselves or to have our own hope in who we are, but rather, Lord, you give us a, a reason to trust in you. You give us a reason to have faith. You give us a reason to have hope in you, Lord. So, Lord, if tonight we came here and uh, we're feeling hopeless, Lord, give us that hope, Lord. If we're feeling division, give us that union, Lord. If we're feeling, feeling that we um, don't belong, Lord, Lord, that we may know that we belong in you, that the world rejected you, and in the same way, it's going to reject us, but there's something greater that we can hope and look towards and have faith in, Lord. So we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in your name. Amen. So we're going to look at uh, chapter 35. Uh, We're going to start there, and we're going to look at uh, verse 1. So it says, this is about uh, Edom. So it says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. So what we see here is that he pronounces judgment. He says, I, the Lord, am against you. It's no longer Israel or the other nations. It's God who's against them. And so in verse 5, he goes on to say this. He says, because you cherish perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you because you did not hate bloodshed. Therefore, blood shall pursue you. So what we see here is that when he talks about perpetual enmity, what he's talking about is an everlasting hatred that Edom has had towards Israel. And it all started with Jacob and Esau. So basically they were brothers. Um, and what ends up happening is that Jacob ends up deceiving uh, his father Isaac into giving him the birthright. But before that, um, what a lot of people don't really point out is that Esau didn't really value his birthright what he did he comes in from hunting he comes in hungry and he says jacob just give me some of that stew that you usually cook and i will give you my birthright in return 
I don't know about you guys, but if I had a birthright, which I don't, unless I, I, I don't know something I don't know, but <laughs> if I had one, um, I would not give it up for, uh, uh, for Stu, but this is how he, little he valued it. And so what we see is that when he finds out that his, uh, mother helped, um, helped Jacob deceive her father for the birthright, he says, I swear that I'm gonna kill him. And so what ends up happening from there is this everlasting hatred for the nation of Israel. So we see later that Esau repents and he doesn't kill him. And uh, Jacob deceives him one more because that's just who he is. And then he goes on to become the nation of Israel. Jacob does. Um, well, Esau becomes the nation of Edom. And what we see that even though Esau had repented, what we see is that they still continue that enmity, that hatred towards Israel. And that's what we're seeing here that he's talking about. He's talking about a hatred that's been everlasting. So the way we see it in the Old Testament is that anytime that Israel would uh, weaken or Israel would be divided or Israel would be attacked by their enemies, what Edom would do who was in the south, they would attack from the south, trying to take advantage of a situation because they were jealous of Israel, because they had this hatred. And so it's this everlasting hatred that we see in verse 9 is going to be, uh, is going to be judged by God. So let's look at verse 9. It says, I will make you a perpetual desolation and your city shall not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Um, so what we see here is that where there's perpetual hatred or everlasting hatred, there's going to be perpetual desolation. Like a hatred that's everlasting is going to be everlasting desolation, destruction. It's going to lead to this place. And so Edom, given the opportunity over and over, because remember, Israel was supposed to be there to be the example to other nations. And and, and, and even though they were that, Edom never got it. And they just continued in this hatred. They were blinded by their hatred. And because of that, God says, you're going to have perpetual desolation so right now, the uh, uh, the mountains of Israel are desolate, but you will be in that place and Israel will be thriving. We'll see that in a little bit. But there's two more things I want to point out here. So in verse 10, he says, because you said these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will take possession of them. Also, the Lord was there. So he says this. He says that um, the Lord was there and they still uh, he still chose to, they still chose to attack. So Babylon exiles all of the Israelites and basically they're, the other people take over the land. But he says that when that happened, Edom tried to take over the land, tried to take advantage and tried to make it theirs. This is important because the land has a lot to do with the people that are in it and the people uh, that were in it as well. So we'll see that there's a connection between the land and Israel and there is a connection between the land and the Edomites, just in a little different way. Because the people in those days used to believe that whatever land you lived in, that land had its own God. So if you live, say, for example, in California, California had its own God. 
Um, Illinois had its own God. Texas had its own God. So on and so on. It's just an example. And so what would happen was that um, the people would take over lands, but they would just add another God to their uh, uh, to their basically collection of God. So as they took over lands. And so what he's saying here is they knew that I am the God of Israel. And despite them being exiled, they still tried to take over a land that didn't belong to them. And so they're coming against me when they come against my people. How many know that's true? That when people come against us, they don't come against us, but they come against God. They come against the workings of God in our lives. And so we see that that's what he's saying here. So he's going to cast judgment on them. Most importantly, in, in verse 5 of chapter 36, if you guys can go to 36, 5, uh, he says this. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they might make it its pasture lands a prey. Um, so we see here that he's, he, he mentions pasture lands as a prey. The reason that's important is because, um, so one of the reasons that the Israelites were exiled, and not a lot of people mention this, but this is one of the reasons why they were exiled, was because when Moses gave the commandments, he was one of the laws that's in Leviticus 25, he was giving the commandment to give to the people that they would work the land for six years, and every seventh year they would take a rest from the land, which is the sabbatical so basically a sabbath from the land so they would give the land rest and the whole purpose behind that was that um the people of israel the nation of israel would trust in god to provide for their uh for their cattle to provide for their families to provide for their crops and they would basically uh, uh be fed and be provided by god and in, in, in provision by god in that instance so the people of israel um they didn't do it and so that's one of the reasons why they end up taking, getting taken out of the land. Um, and that's one of the reasons why uh, they're in exile for 70 years in Babylon. Because the years that they did not do this, keep the sabbatical, was 490 years. If you divide that by seven for every single seventh year that they didn't keep the sabbatical, it comes out to 70 years. And so what ends up happening is God says, you're gonna, I'm going to take you out of the land to give it a rest. And so when the Edomites want to come up and take the land when God's trying to give a rest he says no that's not gonna happen I'm gonna uh, you're gonna be desolate because you came against me and that's what he's saying there and so we see the flip-flop so in verse 30 in chapter 36 verse 1 he says this about Israel he says and you son of man prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. So notice that he's taught, speaking about the land, but in reference to the people of Israel. And not only that, but notice that he says, hear the word of the Lord. It's so important because the emphasis is not so much the land, not so much the people, but the word of the Lord and what he is about to do in that land. And so what we see is that in verse 8, he says this, but you but you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. And I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The city shall be inhabited, 
and the waste places rebuilt, and I will multiply in you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful, and I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So notice that the main point of that is that they know that he is the Lord, that he is bringing them back into the land. He's going to multiply the land. He's going to make it fruitful so that it can sustain them. So he's given them the land back. And so what we see is the first thing here is that he speaks about the land. That's the first thing he's going to speak about. He speaks about this regeneration of the land, whereas the Edomites were thriving, uh, 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 a nation that was thriving while Israel was desolate, they're going to switch it up. And it's going to be the Edomites are going to be desolate. And that actually happens. And it already happened. And so um, the, the scholars, you read books and stuff like that. I haven't actually been there, but you read books and they say that it's a, it's desolate. Uh, what used to be Edom and all that area, is, there's nothing really going on there. Um, but as we see the nation of Israel, little by little, it's thriving. Like God's keeping his promise in there. So as far as this prophecy, what... Um, is believe is that that is what God is doing in Israel now. Some of these other ones is going to be future. So let's go to the next one. The next one is the, the dry bones is what we're going to see. Actually, the two sticks, sorry. And it's going to be in chapter 37, um, verse 16. Actually, we'll start in 15. So chapter 37, verse 15. So it talks about two sticks here. Um, and so it says, The word of, of the Lord came to me, son of man, Take a stick and write on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him, then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him, and join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. So let's look at this really quick. So he's talking about two sticks, right? He's, he's talking about, he brought them in a vision. So, and I'm sorry, he tell them to graph two sticks and he talking, speaking about two sticks. So there's a, um, some people try to take this, uh, as for example, the, uh, Mormons try to take this and say that, uh, one of the sticks is the Old Testament and then the second stick is a scroll that was supposed to be the revelation of Joseph Smith and that was supposed to be the, what completed the Word of God. Nowhere in the, in this context is it speaking about anything else but Israel. Uh, nowhere in the context does it even give way for that. Um, what is actually speaking about, it's speaking about the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel used to be one when they first entered the promised land. But then what ends up happening in um, in 930 BC that um, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, ends up taking the kingship after Solomon dies. And so what ends up happening is that um, he takes the kingship and the people come to him and say and plead with him and say, uh, don't be harsh on us. Take it easy on us now because your father, Solomon, he, yeah, he had all these riches and he gained so much land and so much building, but he was harsh on us and we just, we just need a break. Um, so this king, this young king, uh, he goes and he asks advice from two different groups of people. The first group of people he asks is the elders, the people who had been at the side of Solomon. And they say, yeah, take it easy on them. You know, be wise about it. Um, your father has been harsh. 
The second group of people he asks are his friends who are younger and inexperienced, uh, as it seems. I, I don't know if they were or not, but it seems like that. And so what ends up happening is that um, they tell him, don't give him any leeway. Be harsh on them. They're, they deserve to be for you to be harsh on them. You're a king now. You can do whatever you want. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. And so what ends up happening is that he goes back, takes the advice from the younger group. And what ends up happening is that the, the kingdom divides. The northern kingdom says, we're not taking this. We're going to be our, we're going to choose our own king and, 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 and reign ourselves. And at that point, they split into two kingdoms, northern kingdom, uh, which was composed of 10 tribes and the southern kingdom was, which, which was composed of two tribes, which, uh, the northern was known as Israel. The southern was known as Judah. And so this is important because we see that they started as one nation, but then they go and they become two nations. And not only that, what we see is that in 722 BC, the northern kingdom falls and is exiled by the, by the Assyrians. Secondly, in 586 BC, where Jerusalem was, uh, is when the Babylon exile happens, the people are taken out in 586, finally the temple is destroyed, and then we have no nation really. And so what he's talking about here in 17, when he says, and join them one to one another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. It's this word that is used for one in Hebrew, which is echad. Echad, what it means is one indefinite article. And really what where it's used, and I could give many examples, but um, really where it's used is in Genesis 2.24, when it talks about a man and a woman woman in marriage. Um, the man shall leave his father and his mother and join with his wife and, and be one, become one flesh. So it doesn't mean that they're going to become one person, right? For those who are married here, you didn't become one person, right? There's still those things that are like, ah, I would never do that. Or, ah, I don't think like that. I mean, if me and my wife were one person, that would be terrible. I, I, I love the fact that she compliments me. I love the fact that she thinks differently and she thinks about things that I don't and she does things that I don't. And so when this, uh, echad, talks about um, what, what they're talking about one what it really means is not that it's one person but one substance and one in the eyes of God so the nation of Israel that God uh, that the, the, where division came there's going to be unity but not only unity as one nation unity in the hands of God and so we see in verse 22 he says this so skip down to 22 with me and I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. So one king, and that king being God alone. So we see that he talked about the land. He talks about the nation itself, regenerating it to become one, transforming it back to what he created the nation to be. But now he's going to talk about the people. And so if we go to uh, chapter 37, verse 1. So go there with me um, to chapter 37, verse 1. He says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. 
It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. So we see here that when he says that the Spirit of the Lord led him out, it's, it, it, this is a vision that he's seeing. He's not actually physically there, but it's a vision that he's seeing. Also, if, um, if we see in verse 2... Um, verse 2 says that they're very dry. Very dry, what it tells me is that they've been there for a long time. They've been in this place for a long time. But not only that, there's a hopelessness. Because when something's dry, there's no hope in it. There's no hope to be had. And so what we see is that they're very dry without life, because obviously they're bones. Um, but there's no hope in there. Also, something I forgot to mention uh, Jewish customs with uh, uh, dead bodies, basically, they would, they, it, like, burying them was sacred. You couldn't touch a, a, something that was dead or a dead body because then you would be what they call defiled. Like, you would be unclean and you would have to cleanse yourself. So they took it very serious. So to have a vision of bones just laying in a valley above the ground means that there's also no dignity in them. So they've lost their dignity. They've lost their hope. They've lost their life. Everything they were at one point, they've lost it. And all that's left is bones. And so what we see here, that in verse 3, this is what God asked Ezekiel. And he says, and he said to me, son of man, can these bones live can these bones live? That's a good question. I don't know what I would answer if you were telling me that. I mean, I already saw all these other things. Am I going to try to come up with an answer? Am I going to try to say maybe or be spiritual and say, yeah, and you, they can live or whatever? Well, this is what Ezekiel says. He says, um, he says, I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. Why did he answer that? He answered that because he had his full trust in God, everything, his full reliance in God. There was nothing in him that didn't believe that God could give those bones life. There was nothing in him that didn't believe that God could restore such bones. And so what we see is that he, uh, he, he says exactly that. And so then if we continue on in verse four, it says this. So he said, then he said to me, prophesy over these bones. So this is important because he's saying prophesy, but what he means by prophesy is preach. He says, preach, preach what? So he says, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So he tells them, just preach my word to them. And what we see is that he says, I will cause breath to come upon you. I will cause sinews and flesh and all these things to come upon you to restore you back. And in all of this, 
what you're to know is that I am the Lord. Why? Because he preached the word of God. He preached what God was telling him. He was preaching to dead bones. And God said, when you preach my word to them, what's going to happen is that it's going to be a reversal of being deceased. That's what it really is. Think about it. The bones come together. And we're going to see that right now. But the bones come together, uh, skin and, and muscles and everything start to come. Flesh comes back on. And now it's being restored. So then what we see next in uh, verse 7, it says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. So Ezekiel is just doing what he's being told. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone and looked and I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they may live. So let's stop there really quick. So what we see here is that he prophesies and after he prophesies after he preaches the word of god then that's when the bones start to become restored it's not like lord let me just see like a bone starting just put one together and then i'll believe and i'll preach to these bones i don't know about you guys but if i was preaching to bones i'd be a little weirded out i'd be like god this isn't gonna do anything they're dead already they're gone can can i just have like some other people to preach to but that's not what god gives them he gives them bones to preach to and ezekiel says yes i will preach and when he preaches they come together and everything goes as god has said and one thing he says here in verse nine or actually at the end of eight he says there was no breath in them but then he says in nine then he said to me prophesy to the breath so this word breath, this word breath is rock. And basically what it's understood to be is air in motion or the spirit of God. So it's the spirit of God that's going to be, uh, that's going to be given to them. And so what we see here is that, um, this word breath um, it, it, so, so basically everything is restored, but they still don't have breath. Ezekiel sees them, uh, and, and they still don't have breath. And so then God says, prophesy to the breath, prophesy to preach to the spirit that he may come. And so what we see here is that in verse 10, he says, so I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet and exceedingly great. So that reminds me kind of of Adam just laying there without breath. But then we see here that these bones, they, uh, God reverses what sin, what uh, a fallen nature has done to these bones. He reverses that. And not only does he give them flesh, but he gives them life. And he says that they stand they stood on their feet, and they were an exceedingly great army. That's a big difference. And they're not just like these guys just standing or girls just standing. They're not just like, okay, we're ready here. But no, it says it's an army. It's an army ready to go to war at the command of he who gave them life. It's an army ready to follow any order that 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 of that one that has given him his their spirit or his spirit and so what we see here 
is that God, the nation of Israel, is coming together. The people are coming together. So we saw the land. We saw the nation. We see the people. And we, let's pause here and think about it a little bit. Um, Israel was a nation. Israel had the land. Israel had the people. They were a great people. But they still fell short of the glory of God. They still were exiled. They still were disobeyed and, and were judged by God and taken out of their land. So what's different now? And so what we see, it's the last thing, is that they had a heart of stone, but God says no more. I'm going to give you, I'm going to take that heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. So go to Ezekiel 36, 22 with me. Actually, we'll start in 25, verse 25. So Ezekiel 36, verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you, cleanse you. So the first thing he says, that he's going to cleanse them. He's going to clean them. He says, just by the sprinkling of water, I don't even need to dip you into a river or into a pool or whatever it may be of water. He says, just by the sprinkling of water, I'm going to cleanse you. And you're no longer going to desire what you used to desire. These things that are here compared to what I have for you. What he's saying is, I'm going to align your heart with mine. I'm going to take your desires and I'm going to put my desires in you. But I got to cleanse you of yours first. So he says, I'm going to cleanse you. And you're no no longer going to want idols. You're no longer going to want to have idols because you're going to have one God. And that's going to be me. And so then in 29, he goes on and he says, And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from you, your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the difference now is that we're not going to, they're not going to have the heart of stone. He's going to take that heart of stone. He's going to cleanse. He's going to take that heart of stone. How many of you know that we could so easily have a heart of stone towards God? God says go and we say no. God says do and we say no. God says preach and we say no. I know I can't be that way. But here he says in this time, which scholars believe it's a future time, in this time he's going to take that heart of stone. And now he's not just going to leave it empty. Let me take that away from you. No, where God takes, God gives. And so what he says is that he's going to give a heart of flesh, a heart that pumps, a heart that flows a heart that loves. And he says, not only that, I'm not just going to leave you there because I've seen you on your own there. I've seen you in those instances, in those moments when you have a heart of flesh. But nah, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to take it a step further and I'm going to complete it. I'm going to make it 100% restored. Perfect and complete. 
How? I'm going to give you my spirit. He says, this word echad, I'm going to make you one with me, one with me. And so what we see here is that um, what he's doing um, is that he's not only going to restore the land, he's not only going to restore the nation or the people, but he's going to restore the heart. He's going to go into the internals. He's going to work on it, and he's going to put his spirit. He's going to make sure that this time there's no way that the nation of Israel could disobey. There's no way that the nation of Israel can want anything else but God. And so then if we look at verse 36 in chapter 36, he says this. He says, Then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. He says the same thing in 37:14. So look at verse, uh, chapter 37, verse 14. He says, And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it declares the Lord. He says, I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. How many of you guys believe that tonight? Like truly believe it in your heart. In your heart. And you don't have to say it, but believe it in your heart. Because we could easily say, yeah, I believe, but not believe in our hearts. And what really matters to God is not the external, but rather what's in our hearts. And so he says, I have said it. I will do it. He says, declares the Lord. And so This is the nation of Israel. Um, They were two sticks and God's going to restore them to one. Two nations to one in him. A land that was desolate, he's going to restore it. So what does this mean for us? You see, in the New Testament, um, the the word of God came to Israel. The, the, The Messiah came to Israel but they rejected him. And upon the rejection of Israel, it's believed that that opened up the doors for the Gentiles. You read the letters of Paul, you read Peter, and, and in Peter, the main instrument to the Gentiles, these doors were open. And so, yes, Israel is going to be restored as a nation. Israel will be who they talk about here, but we have hope as well. In our state of hopelessness, in our state of uh, uh, brokenness, there is hope. There's a reversal of the distortion that that sin causes in our lives. And so I just want to look at a few more verses here before we uh, close up. Um, In chapter 37, there's three things I want to look at. The first one is in verse 24. He says, my servant David... Uh, so thirty-seven, twenty-four. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. So when he talks about one shepherd, I can only think of one shepherd that's a good shepherd, and that's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so as we look at this, we start to see that we are only meant to have one king united in Christ. Also, a little lower in 26, if we look at verse 26, 26, it says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. So this covenant, um, this covenant, it's not dependent on us. 
It's not dependent on our works. It's not dependent on us keeping the law. It is depending on us accepting Jesus Christ, repenting of our sin, because he can't take that away from us if we don't choose to give it up. But the covenant itself is a covenant of grace. Uh, When I think of a covenant of peace and everlasting, I think of Jesus Christ. He is peace. Without Jesus Christ, there is no peace. It doesn't matter what the world wants to say. Oh, peace with all, peace in the world. Let's fight for that. It doesn't matter. If you don't have Jesus Christ, there is no peace. It's a confusion. There is no peace. And so what we see here, that this covenant of grace is and through Jesus Christ himself, because he is peace. How many of you guys know that when we put our fully put our trust, when we fully just rely on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, all we get is peace. Everything just melts away. All worries, all concerns, all pain, all suffering, whatever it may be, it just melts away. And so what we see is that he is the everlasting king of peace. And the last one we're going to look at here is that in 28, actually, let's start in 27. It says, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So what he's talking about is an indwelling of his presence with the nation of Israel, an indwelling of his presence with us. And that also reminds me of one. And Isaiah spoke about it in Isaiah chapter 7, 14, but he didn't fully explain it. His prophecies said that uh, one would be born and his name would be Emmanuel. And then Matthew takes it a step further. And he says, one would, he says the same prophecy, but he says, born Emmanuel. And he says, Emmanuel means God with us, his presence with us. And then John, I don't know about you guys, but John is so, like the way he uh, speaks the word of God is just so deep. Sometimes you just have to dwell on a verse, but he says about the word of God being Jesus Christ. In uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, the word dwelt among us. And so here I see that there's hope, that there is, uh, that, that this is not all we have. So I don't know where we're at tonight. I don't know what we all came here. I mean, it's impossible to know that. But I know that in some way or another, this is meant for, for somebody here, one, each and every one of us here. Why? Because in um, the Word of God, we find a power of peace. We find a power of hope. We find a power that when we are broken, He will re- fully restore us back to be perfect now that's not that doesn't happen right away but there will come a day when we he will come in those clouds and he will come as king and and in that time we're going to be caught up with him and we're going to be perfect and complete the word does say that 